Welcome to the herd and thanks for listening. We're happy to help you have informed conversations with your healthcare providers. But please do not treat anything we say in this or any of our episodes as medical advice. Even when the guests are physicians, they're not your physician. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating, and follow, and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herdmates Sodcast. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Ted Naiman. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me, Dr. Ballerstad. I appreciate it. Oh, we can shift to first names now, so that's fine. Thank you. Um, so, Ted, you practice family medicine, and you do that in the Seattle area. Yes, that is correct. Yeah, absolutely. I've been here about 20 years, primary care uh, for a major uh, medical center in Seattle. And uh, yeah, I've just been doing the family medicine thing. Exactly. Um, now, let's just say what family medicine is for people that aren't familiar. What, what does that mean as opposed to some other branches? Right, right. So it's a, it's just a three-year residency, very similar in duration to internal medicine or pediatrics or any of the other primary care um, specialties. But uh, family practice in particular, you do a little bit of everything. You do a little bit of peds and a little bit of obstetrics and a little bit of internal medicine and a little bit of hospital medicine. And you kind of do everything. And it's definitely for somebody who wants to be a generalist. And you can literally... Uh, pretty much go anywhere and do anything from a family medicine background. So it's the it's the most broad of all the medical um, board certifications, basically. So I've worked in the past as a hospitalist full time, or in the emergency room, or just uh, what I'm doing now, which is completely outpatient. So it's kind of just like a very broad generalist um, specialization. You can see any age of anything for any at any time for whatever. Has that changed over the last year in terms of actually seeing patients? Uh, you know, it's still about the same, except for the fact that we sprinkled in some uh, virtual visits now. We're doing a lot more video stuff, which is cool. I, I mean, honestly, it's only about 20% of the uh, of what I'm doing, but it's still uh, kind of a nice addition because it's so convenient for people who don't necessarily need to get cut on or examined or have anything hands-on. So, um, you know, if I'm just going over somebody's labs or something, it's just as easy to do it virtually and then they don't have to drive into the clinic and sit in the waiting room forever and read a magazine from like a hundred years ago and, and catch COVID from some, you know, slob next to them in the waiting room. It's just, so it's very nice, honestly. And I kind of, I think it's here to stay and it's about time. Okay. 20 years. Um, now in your back, where did you grow up? I'm from Denver originally, and uh, yeah, from Denver, uh, lived on the East Coast for about a decade, uh, have been all over, went to uh, college up here in Washington, med school in Southern California at Loma Linda, 
uh, residency again on the East Coast for three years and then moved back here in 2000. I've been in the Seattle area for the last 20 years. So on by Seattle terms, that's basically a native. You know, every everybody moves to Seattle. So if you've been here 20 years, you're pretty much a native. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Nancy and I have lived about five hours south of you since 86, but I'm not sure Oregonians look at it the same way as Seattleites <laughs> would. Um, right. So you did some... Your early practice was in North Carolina, is that right? Uh, residency in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Okay. Residency South Carolina. Okay. Mm-hmm. I know. It, it matters to them. I'm sorry. Apologies. <laughs> right. Um, I have lots of colleagues in both uh, places. Um, so, and it was there, I think, as I recall, that you kind of had a paradigm shift, at least begin, if not fully take place. And if you could describe that for us. Yeah, I think it was there that I I really became interested in in diet and health, which is interesting because I, uh, you know, have a vegetarian background, uh, raised Adventist, a lot of vegetarianism, trained at Loma Linda University, which is this plant-based Mecca. And uh, after you know seeing the people around me, I wasn't really very impressed with uh, the effect that diet had on health in general. Um, but was introduced to low carb diets in South Carolina and really had a kind of a, a huge interest in that. Um, uh, when a patient basically came in and had read the Atkins book and lost thirty pounds and reversed his diabetes, and I didn't even know that was a thing. Hmm. Um, before then. And so I've just, I think that's really what got me interested in diet and health. And I've been, you know, researching it uh, personally and professionally for the past 20 years. And that's kind of got me to where I'm at. So, and, and then it wasn't just a professional thing. It was a personal thing as well. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Very, very interested in how it works. You know, what are the levers of health? What's driving health versus disease? Uh, you know, how to, uh, what's, you know, what are the factors that are changing everybody's body composition and their outcomes and their metabolic health and things like that? I've been extremely interested in all of that. And I, I've seen the before and after pictures that you had. Um, I think you say that you weigh the same as you did then, but it l- looks a little different. Yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, I do weigh about the same as I did, you know, 30 years ago. But I- I've just recomped. You know, it's really just been getting more lean mass and less fat mass. And that's mostly due to my macronutrient changes and exercise, resistance exercise predominantly. Okay. Make sure everybody understands what macronutrients are. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, that's basically just the carb, fat, and protein breakdown of my diet. Mm-hmm. And um, so you say the levers of health. What what do you mean by that? Right, right. So, um, you know, when I... When I go to work every day, I see just this massive spectrum in health. I see 
you know, people who are just incredibly healthy. They have tons of lean mass, hardly any fat mass. They're in incredible shape. They they might be a, a CrossFit athlete or someone who's a, a physique model or someone who's just extraordinarily healthy. And then the very next patient I might see could be the same age and gender, but they're um, their body is just completely crumbling apart. They might be in a wheelchair. They might have uh, severe uncontrolled diabetes. They might have every diabetic complication you could name. They might have um, all kinds of metabolic syndrome uh, diagnoses like high blood pressure and uh, horrible lipids and uncontrolled blood sugar and you name it. And uh, Honestly, I've just been fascinated with the fact that the, the the biggest differences between these two phenotypes is really diet and exercise. And it's incredible how just a few levers for diet and exercise can steer you in one direction or the other. And the gradient between the healthiest people I see and the unhealthiest people I see just purely due to diet and exercise is absolutely staggering. Okay. Um, let's, let's hit exercise just a little bit because everybody thinks that that's the number one key to health. I mean, we're told that that's the key to attaining and maintaining a healthy weight, whatever that is. We could talk about that. Um, and we're told that it needs to be, you know, I don't know what, 60 minutes a day, five days a week or something that we're, I mean, the guidelines. So let's make sure that we understand what you consider to be effective and appropriate exercise. Right, right. So, so basically exercise is a way of getting a positive adaptation from your body. Your body is giving you a specific adaptation to an imposed demand. You're, you're demanding something of your body and your body has to adapt to accommodate that. And exercise is a, just a massive, huge, big deal. And I think that it really is about 50% of anyone's health, as evidenced by someone who, for example, lays in the ICU for two weeks and loses so much lean mass that they you know, have to have a physical therapist to teach them how to walk up the stairs again. Or someone who's been in zero gravity for a couple months on the International Space Station, and they literally can't show them coming home because they can't walk, and people have to, you know, put put them on a stretcher and wheel them out of the, you know, it's like you you your body just completely crumbles. Your bone density and your muscle just go away. If you don't use it, you immediately lose it. These are very expensive tissues for your body to maintain. And your body's as thrifty as possible, and it thinks it's saving your life by just reabsorbing any unused tissue so you don't have to waste any energy or protein on it. And so anything you're not using will just completely go away. And we have this massive epidemic of sarcopenia and osteopenia and osteoporosis in elderly people in this country is a complete disaster. There's so much morbidity and mortality related to frailty, and all of this is due to lack of exercise. And it, it, basically, if you don't demand the, the absolute maximum output from your muscles on a regular basis, they're going to just re reabsorb into your body and go away. And the same is true of bone strength as well. So it's absolutely crucial that people are regularly putting maximum tension in all the muscles in their body and all the bones of their body. 
And as it turns out, if you get the intensity really high, you don't need a whole lot of volume or duration of exercise. It can be extremely brief, but it has to be a high intensity. So you're really demanding that your body change. You, you, you have to send a message to your body that it's not sufficient the way it is. And if it doesn't adapt, you're going to die. And then uh, lo and behold, it only takes a few minutes of very, very targeted, very high intensity effort exercise to get some really good adaptations and build lean mass, muscle and bone. So would this have something to do with uh, exerting muscles to failure in whatever activity somebody finds that they'll do? Absolutely. This would basically be trying to crank the intensity of effort up as high as you can, uh, such as a pu a pushing movement all the way to failure, a pulling movement to failure, a leg against gravity movement to failure like a squat or lunge, and then uh, ideally also doing some sort of cardio uh, at the upper limits of your tolerance so that you get a better cardiorespiratory fitness and a higher VO2 max and all of that kind of thing. And uh, it turns out you can trade intensity for duration on almost all of these. So the actual volume of exercise people need to be optimally healthy is not that big. It's not nearly as big as people think it is. I think you were the first person to show a, that I saw a slide showing that the nature of our fuel will have an effect on how much CO2 we emit. Um, which I always find interesting when we have conversations about greenhouse gas emissions. And I'm like, well, let's see, we have seven and a half billion human beings. And if we could reduce the amount of CO2 each one of us releases, then does that get accounted for in the food system calculations? And apparently not, but right. it, it, it entertained me for a while. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's interesting. So, and, and I think you've said that for some people with actual respiratory issues, it could be significant enough to make a difference to them. Is that? Uh, I, I think that's possible, although I don't have a lot of data on that. So I'm okay. not really, don't, don't hold me to that. Uh, but it's very interesting. Um, the amount, the O2 requirements change if you're eating more carbohydrate versus fat and the uh, CO2 you exhale changes as well. And so I don't know how applicable that is to the average person, but if you're on the extremes of human physiology, like if you have emphysema and you're summiting Mount Everest, it might actually be an interesting factor. And, and that would be an interesting circumstance that I'd probably want to find out more about how that person got there. But, um, <laughs> well, and I think Jay Wartman's son did an um, honors study where they, he and Jay and his son went on a trip to Nepal and went to great altitude and went to great lengths to remain in ketosis and monitored that and used a standardized assessment of altitude sickness and applied it to everybody else as well as themselves on this trip. And they were the only ones that were in ketosis and the findings were, yeah, it seems like it might have an, uh, a beneficial effect on lowering altitude sickness. So That's interesting. Um, I think, uh, so I'm recalling the conversation. He said that they really had only found like one 
mention of it sort of wondering about it in the literature and, and no real work. So uh, there's at least that. Um, and something else that you helped me learn about a while ago, and that was this, you, you mentioned all the metabolic derangements that you can see in your patients. Um, but the point that you helped me understand was how they're all sort of on a spectrum of, they're not, people frequently think obesity is a cause of, and then fill in the blank, or raises your risk of, and fill in the blank, when perhaps a better understanding is that obesity is one of many manifestations of metabolic derangement, and they're all symptoms of that is am i recalling that properly would you agree right yeah absolutely i mean all of these metabolic arrangements are are typically hyperinsulinemia which is just being over fat at the level of your subcutaneous fat cells and someone with a very low amount of subcutaneous fat uh, with the inability to expand the subcutaneous fat compartment might not have obesity technically on a BMI scale, but they're completely over fat and they have way too much energy in their bloodstream all the time. Insulin's chronically high. They have energy toxicity. They have full-blown metabolic syndrome or even raging type 2 diabetes with little to no obesity or an, even a normal BMI. So obesity itself uh, is just as defined by uh, BMI is really something that is happening in parallel to the uh, the metabolic syndrome of overfatness. So you might or might not have obesity along with it. But either way, you're you're basically looking at overfatness and energy toxicity as the biggest driver of metabolic problems. But raw weight is a poor metric of health, which is what you're saying. Uh, well, on, on a population scale, it's really good. If you look at BMI and fasting insulin on, of the entire planet, it, it makes a really nice straight line. But on an individual level, it's a disaster because you might have someone who, you know, weighs 300 pounds, but they're still very insulin sensitive because they have a lot more room to get fatter. Or, or someone, you know, from Southeast Asia who's only five pounds overweight and just horrifically over fat and their triglycerides are 500 and their fasting insulin's 50 and their A1C is, you know, eight. So you could have all kinds of metabolic derangement at a low BMI on an individual level. So yeah, I would totally agree with that. So that's sort of the genetic uh, factor at play and people in livestock management would understand this. Certainly, there are breeds of animals that are historically known to be leaner and others not so. And and uh, having read Gary Taubes' latest book, I'm, I'm remembering the term from my time around horses that some horses are easy keepers. That that's the phrase that you don't have to feed them as much as these other animals. And so a similar th should be expected with human beings as well, because we have this great, great genetic diversity as well. Um, so poor metrics of health. Okay. If somebody, uh, I, I try to tell people that 
by my understanding, BMI, um, LDL cholesterol, and total cholesterol are poor metrics of health. And yet, most people who go to their physicians, if they have a conversation, it's about those three things somewhere in the conversation. So help people understand what what might be better metrics for health that they could ask for or pursue finding on their own. Gotcha. Well, well my absolute favorite by a mile is waist to height ratio. So you measure your waist at the belly button, um, you know, in the morning, abdomen fully relaxed, waist circumference at the belly button by your height, your waist should be less than half your height. And if it's higher than half your height, then this waist circumference indicates some amount of, of abdominal fat storage. And that's bad. That means you filled up all your subcutaneous fat, you're storing visceral fat, and that's a, a sign of definite over or fatness, you're probably going to have some amount of metabolic syndrome. And so just from a uh, completely free and, you know, one step above just looking in the mirror, uh, waist to height ratio is phenomenal. Uh, if you're talking lab markers, probably one of my very, very favorites is fasting triglycerides. Fasting triglycerides, you have your blood drama, you haven't eaten any calories for 12 hours, and you really want your triglycerides to be under 100. Um, ideally you want your triglycerides to be under 70. Uh, if you're, you know, if you're over about 115, you're definitely fully insulin resistant. You, you'd really like to stay in the double digit range. And what triglycerides are, are fat energy in your blood. That's just circling um, and not being absorbed by your fat cells because they already have too much fat in them. And they're basically refusing this energy and it's staying in your bloodstream. So it's just a sign of overfatness. Fasting triglycerides are extremely helpful, extremely uh, nice metric, and it's really cheap. Uh, most people have high triglycerides for years and years and years before they're going to have high blood pressure and high fasting glucose and elevated A1C and actual type 2 diabetes and all the other downstream metabolic syndrome problems that that end up in basically uncontrolled type 2 diabetes, which is kind of the end stage of metabolic uh, syndrome and insulin resistance. But yeah, fasting triglycerides, really nice early metric. I like those a lot. Um, if you have, uh, you know, if you want to get a little bit fancier, you can also check a fasting insulin level. Although uh, those are rarely done by standard physicians. So it's little harder to get a hold of and nobody actually has to get one of those. It's just interesting to see. Okay. Um, HDL levels, they tend to go with the triglycerides. You didn't mention them. So HDL is usually inverse to triglycerides. So most of our patients with high triglycerides are going to have uh, low HDL at the same time. And most people with low triglycerides are going to have high HDL. Um, you can't really necessarily look at the absolute HDL number itself because there are huge genetic factors there. And certain genetic groups of people will have genetically very high HDL or genetically very low HDL. Um, but what is uh, often helpful is is a triglyceride to HDL ratio. You really want triglyceride to HDL ratio, ideally of 1.0 or lower. You want your triglycerides less than HDL to be really elite. 
Um, but you certainly don't want your triglycerides to be more than about double what your HDL is because you're probably dealing with some sort of insulin resistance. Okay. Um, and so again, insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia being, uh, I remember, um, uh, uh, a paper with the title about unifying theory of chronic illness as a, as a possibility. They were asking the question. Um, so how much, and maybe you can't answer this, but how much of medical costs today are around these chronic metabolic non-infectious diseases? versus infectious diseases? Well, I would say it's probably the number two cause of premature death on the planet, second only to smoking. Um, and, and it's definitely a huge, huge, huge driver of chronic disease. And uh, yeah, I can't think of anything that's just more egregiously bad for your health other than smoking, honestly, when it comes to just being sick or dying. I would say this insulin resistance, this overfatness, this metabolic syndrome is probably the biggest problem we've got. Okay. So um, conventional wisdom has been that if you don't eat fat, you can't get fat. Um, the, the conventional wisdom has been that if you don't eat fat, you can't get fat. And that's actually true. That's actually accurate. This is, uh, um, the vast majority of fat stored in your body is, comes from dietary fat. Statistically speaking, almost all the fat in your body is from dietary fat. Certainly over 90% of the fat in your body comes from dietary fat. So there, th this is not completely mythical. Um, the problem, <laughs> the problem with uh, this theory is that, well, let's put it this way. If you're already very, very lean, it's easy to not get fat as long as you just don't eat any fat. That works pretty well, in fact. And a, a reasonable strategy for staying lean in someone who's lean is to eat a very low fat diet. I think that's perfectly acceptable. I actually um, don't have a problem with that at all. Uh, you, you want to eat a certain amount of fat, however, for satiety and for optimal hormonal function and even your elite bodybuilders. Um, they're, they'll basically tell you that they never go below 20% of calories from fat, and they're loath to go less than about 30% of calories from fat because bad things start happening to you. Um, so I think low-ish fat is perfectly fine, and in fact, I like that, um, but going too low in fat is definitely a thing. Okay, especially if all of those calories are replaced with, and then you could fill in the blank of highly refined carbohydrates or. Right, right. If you're replacing your fat with carbohydrates, especially refined carbohydrates, you're pretty much going nowhere. Uh, you mentioned the hormonal response from fat versus the carbohydrates first, and we could maybe think about um, 
it's it's hard to imagine correcting insulin resistance and chronically elevated insulin on a diet high in especially refined carbohydrates well i mean you could do it to some degree if you get your fat intake low enough so <clears throat> Uh, the reality is that carbs uh, raise your insulin really high acutely, uh, but then that falls off in a few hours. Uh, eating fat will, uh, most of that fat does get stored as fat. And what that does is, is slowly uh, raise your basal insulin requirements because you are getting fatter as you eat more fat. And so you, you'll see carbs contributing to acute insulin, fat contributing to basal or chronic insulin, and too much of either one is going to worsen your overfatness, your insulin resistance, and your metabolic syndrome. It, it's actually just about equal isocalorically as to which is worse, refined carbs and refined fats in terms of just making you more insulin resistant due to low satiety per calorie. And I guess that would be the next thing is, is isocalorically, but we're talking about free living human beings who respond to cues to eat more from the food that they're eating. And so if, if you could hold them constant or equal in whatever sense, maybe you could get to the same place or something along that line. But if what you're eating prompts you to eat more versus the other, which prompts you, as you said, to feel sated, um, then we have a whole nother aspect of this conversation coming into play. And you've spent a lot of time looking at protein to energy. Um, and so this may be a segue into that, but I do, um, the, the, there's this logical problem that I notice, and that is there are people who will think that, yes, you've lost X percent of body fat or amount of body fat, but to do that, you ate this diet, right, that somehow doesn't align with what we think is the healthy diet. And so, wait a minute, you're saying that being leaner if you eat the wrong way isn't health? I, I, I just... At the end of the day, what we've done is we've eaten our own body fat. And if that body fat is a lot like the animal fat that we're consuming, why should what we eat of ourselves be okay and the other harmful? I, I, maybe there's some logical problems or maybe I'm just not thinking clearly enough. No, I mean, I'm with you on that one. Uh, yeah, and, and I do think, I think that the ultimate solution is eating foods that have a higher long-term satiety per calorie. So if I can give you a food that provides you with you know, an entire day's worth of protein and minerals and micronutrients and satiety and you're not hungry, uh, but there's you know no calories in it somehow magically, then you're obviously going to reverse your uh, metabolic syndrome, your insulin resistance and obesity the the most rapidly and you're going to sustain your weight loss the very very best so to me it's all about long-term satiety per calorie and i do think that um avoiding refined carbohydrates 
uh, goes a really long way to improving satiety per calorie. I also think that increasing protein is even more powerful. And that's why I'm so into the protein thing. And that's why I write this, wrote this whole book on the protein energy ratio. I think that's the single biggest driver of satiety per calorie, uh, bigger than anything else. Um, so I, I think that's the biggest rock in the jar when it comes to um, reversing metabolic syndrome, obesity, uh, long-term weight loss and weight loss success. It's, it, for me, protein percentage is absolutely the most important factor uh, of all. Okay. And you're talking about protein and energy you're you're looking at those on a caloric basis is that correct and and doing the ratio between those correct correct or any way you want to look at it grams or calories or whatever i'm basically looking at um, the percentage of what you're eating that's protein versus non-protein energy um and and i've mentioned to you that i've gone a little bit down the rabbit hole in terms of protein in human nutrition. And I'm drawing on my experience from ruminant nutrition and forage management. And I, one of the things that my colleagues have spent a long time doing is working out how to, for example, sample hay, you know, large amounts of hay. <clears throat> you want a reliable estimate of what its nutrient value is for feeding livestock. And we learned long, long ago that table values aren't reliable. Hay varies tremendously based on from cut to cut in the same field, from field to field, from year to year. Lots of things can change. So we've worked all this out. And then it finally occurred to me that, that's true across all plant source foods. They're tremendously variable in their nutrient composition and in the digestibility of those nutrients. And then in some cases, we actually see that processing can reduce the digestibility of some of those nutrients. So there's, it's, it's a lot more complicated than we've been led to believe. Versus animal source foods, we've sort of all, we can rely on the animals to have done a lot of that sorting out, right? Because they've created the tissues. They dealt with the variability in whatever food they were eating. And so we have a much more reliable source of nutrients from animal source foods than we do from plant source foods. Um, and uh, uh, one of the key differences, and I remember listening to you at a conference in Seattle, and it's like, here's this physician finally talking about nitrogen cycling. And I'm like, yes, um, <laughs> exactly. thank you. Um, a lot of, a significant amount of the protein that we're told exists in plant source food is in fact not real protein. It's 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 crude protein, and that's just the nitrogen content that we multiply by six point two five to estimate. So it it gets really 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 tricky for people, uh, and I'm convinced that there are a lot of people who are sincerely thinking that they're doing the right thing, paying all attention, but they don't understand that they don't have the information they need to do that. So. Right. Um, 
I, I don't know if that's anything you want to kind of discuss yeah. or go down with. I mean, I, I, I definitely worry about plant-based diets in general when it comes to bioavailability and completeness of amino acid profiles and also crude nitrogen, as you point out. And uh, it, the reality is that it's hard to meet all your protein needs on a plant-based diet. It's hard to meet your protein needs on a plant-based diet without overeating carbohydrate energy. And it can be done, but you have to really go out of your way to target protein. And, you know, you, you, I think that for the average person, it's probably actually going to lower their protein to energy ratio if they just are told you should eat a plant-based diet and they have no other knowledge or information. So I think if we flipped a switch and tomorrow everybody was on a plant-based diet, they'd automatically overeat several hundred calories a day, uh, mostly from carbohydrate in an attempt to reach the protein satiety that they need. So I think that would be a, basically an unmitigated disaster. Um, can you be optimally healthy on a plant-based diet? Probably, but you have to go way out of your way and you have to be really smart about it. You have to know what you're doing. And so it makes me a little nervous. And I, I think the other aspect to consider is how much of the plant foods are in fact processed versus how much are eaten in their, you know, raw, well, not raw, but close to their original state. Um, I think, have you published, and I've looked at it and I'm looking at it recently, but I can't recall what percent of the calories in Americans diet come from sugar, grains, and plant lipids. Uh, well, I, I don't. I can't quote anything exactly. I do know that about sixty percent of human calories come from wheat, rice, and corn, and I don't know how much of that is uh, lipid versus carbohydrate. Um, I do know the majority of it is processed, and so uh, you know the reality is uh, over eighty percent of all the calories we're all eating um, in America are plant-based already. And most of them are come from grains, most of them are refined, and it's been a complete disaster for human health, probably due to protein and mineral dilution um, from basically non-protein energy, either uh, plant lipids or plant carbohydrate. Um, so it, just going more plant-based is probably... <laughs> By itself and not the answer. Yeah. You know? Well, yeah, I, I can say from memory that more of humanity's protein supply comes from cereals as a single category right. than mm -hmm. all animal source foods combined. Correct. And, and with rice, you know, having uh, Eleven percent protein yeah. or something like that. It's and 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 wheat is the single largest source. Right. These are it's, pretty depressing. It, it's um, spoke with one protein nutritionist who said that if you were you know if you take you know an eight year old boy from India and you gave him ad libitum amounts of rice and lentils. He physically couldn't eat enough to meet his needs for proper growth and development from protein. Uh, 
and that's before we look at anything else. So, um, right. It, it's a, and, and okay. So, um, we have an RDA for protein for humans. If you have anything you want to say about that, that would, you know, what, uh, what do you tell people in terms of what they should be trying to get? I'm a lot of I the RDA disturbs me because a lot of people see this as their protein target, um, which is extremely um, scary because that is a very very bare minimum below which you'll have frank deficiencies, and uh, <laughs> so uh, I, I'm bothered both by the RDA and by the. Um, uh, macronutrient guidelines in general that dictate that, you know, human protein should fall between 10 and 35% of calories, which is really, really disturbing because uh, some of the healthiest people I know sit at around 40% of their calories from protein chronically, including myself. And if you're over fat and trying to get leaner, you actually, it's desirable to eat much higher protein percentages than that. And so I think these things are really muddying the waters. The RDA for protein, uh, sure, I can see establishing a bare minimum, but it really muddies the waters for people who are like, oh, if you eat any more than that, you're just wasting your money. Um, they're not paying any attention to satiety per calorie at all or what um, humans are expecting coming into their bodies from an evolutionary perspective. So it's a complete nightmare to me. And then I think that establishing these percentages is also ridiculous because it uh, it radically changes based on the amount of energy flux you're going through and and how much energy is already on your body. So I think everyone needs to take these with a massive grain of salt. Yeah, a block of salt, as we a say. block, a salt lick. Uh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, so a couple things. Um, one is, yeah, um, talking about protein in terms of percent of calories is completely inappropriate because we need an amount, and that doesn't vary based on how many calories we're taking in. So if you express that in terms of calories, it could increase or decrease, but that's like not appropriate here, right. and yet we, yet we do it. The other is when you... It, sort of like nutrition tables, depending on how many times the data has been excerpted, more and more footnotes fall out, right? All that right. nuance gets lost in the communication. Um, RDA is for a, quote, reference protein. And reference is, de is defined as high quality, i.e. animal source foods. Right. And so it's like all that gets lost in the translation. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, and, and I agree, plus we now have the evidence that says as we get to be older farts, um, we need more because we don't have, it may not be accurate to say that we're not as efficient at utilizing it to maintain lean muscle mass. That may be my interpretation. But the fact is that people are now talking about increasing the target for people as they age. Um, and this, of course, will have ramifications for an aging global population as we go to mid-century and beyond. Um, 
So we have all these conversations about reimagining a food system, but we frankly don't understand what the food ought to be that's provided by the food system, which I think that's a problem. Yeah, I see. It seems awfully backwards. <laughs> uh, call us radical. Um, so you've described, or, or others, not just you, but I am fascinated by the experience of deprescribing. I, I, I see my perception is these, well, by their definition, chronic disease. There's an expectation that you have it now and you always will. And you're telling me, doctor, you're telling me that it's not necessarily so. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the vast majority of chronic non-infectious diseases are uh, basically metabolic in nature. And it's driven by lifestyle, which is pretty much a sedentation or lack of exercise and uh, high energy density, low nutrient density foods. So you're hypercaloric and over fat. And, um, you know, air, the vast majority of everyone I see with, you know, high blood pressure and dyslipidemia and prediabetes and diabetes, which is the majority of the United States for sure. Um, most of that's completely reversible with diet and exercise. And I have people just throwing all their pills directly in the trash on a, on a almost daily basis. And it, it is, uh, really, really rewarding. And, uh, uh, once you get somebody who actually gets it and buys in um, and just makes a few sustainable changes, the, the, the difference in their health is massive. And it's, uh, uh, yeah, our whole, our whole chronic uh, disease healthcare model, sick care model is a, a nightmare disaster. And uh, <laughs> we need to just nuke the whole thing from high orbit and just start over from scratch. We really do. It's, mm. it's bad, <laughs> but yeah, deprescribing is one of my favorite things to do. And, uh, uh, if I disappear someday, it's the pharmaceutical industry that took me out probably. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Uh, um, okay. Well, you know, so we'll work on, what sorts of phrases that we'll say when we've been kidnapped and forced right. to give statements, you know, I'll, I'll blink like five times in a row or something. Exactly. Excellent. Excellent. And then we'll figure out who to send to come get you. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe Sean Baker. I don't know. Um, right. There you go. Not me. There's um, talk about phenotypic difference. That's um, and again, I, there are conversations about, oh, sorry, you use the word sustainable. And I want you to define that in the context that you used it, please. Oh, sure. Yes. So I like people to start eating now the way they're going to eat long term. And I really don't like diets with a stop date. I don't like extended fasting and I don't like 30 day cleanses and I don't like 10 day boot camps. And I don't like, if you can't picture yourself doing it six months from now or six years from now, don't even bother. And for most people, it means 
Really? Just something as simple as trading in about 100 grams of their carbohydrates per day for 100 grams of protein. If I really had to zoom out and just tell you what the average person is doing to make these big changes in their health from a diet perspective, it ends up looking like eating an extra 100 grams of protein at the cost of eliminating 100 grams of carbohydrate. And that's basically the practical take home. So, you know, cowboy math, we're talking a quarter pound, basically, um, of meat more or whatever your animal source food is more a day, right? Uh, well, no, less. more like a, more like a pound. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, so that would be 400 and some odd grams, right? Well, I'm talking about 100 grams of protein. Oh, so protein. like uh, well, see, 400 there we grams go. Of, of meat. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, all right. That makes a significant difference. And as I've been trying to, nobody sits down and eats protein, right? We, we, we eat food that mm -hmm. has these components. And when we eat animal source food, we're eating more typically higher quality protein, often with a significant amount of fat and negligible carbohydrate. So, and, and I'm talking to people from industry saying, I know why you're emphasizing protein. I, I know why you're there, but we need to get past that and, and start emphasizing all the other nutrients, as you said, that you get along with it that increase the nutritional density as well as the satiety of this food versus these other competing uh, products. So, okay, so you're saying a pound more of animal source food a day. Right, yeah. And, and so for people who are on the road a lot, that means you're not eating the chicken fried steak. That means you're eating right. the you know, the cheese omelet instead, and you're not getting the 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 hash browns with it on the side. Ask for anything else, uh, a side of bacon or sausage or whatever. Um, that means that uh, for lunch, salmon and a green salad. That means no bread. That means no pasta. That means certainly not drinking your carbohydrates. Um, that might be the first thing to get rid of. Does that sound like I'm on the right track? Absolutely, yeah. And so what I tell my patients is to, you know, really just ideally plan, just center every meal and every snack around some sort of protein. And that's kind of how you have to do it to really get this protein focus taken care of, you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, every meal has to be centered around a protein um, and ideally a lean protein because it's easy to always add fat and carbohydrate to it. You can put on more butter or cheese or bacon or whatever, um, but you can't necessarily take that fat or carbohydrate away from it. Like the chicken fried steak is going to be a disaster because there's so much carbon fat energy in there that you basically really haven't helped yourself out at all. Um, but just like a, a piece of sirloin, oh yeah, that would be awesome. You know, this is 
phenomenal protein source. And you're going to get just tons of satiety per calorie and tons of nutrient density and a very low energy density and a phenomenal protein to energy ratio. Um, so yeah, ideally centering every meal and every snack around uh, some sort of lean protein is the way to go, in my opinion. Good news. Um, that sounds like no hardship at all, as far as I can tell. <laughs> well, the it, you know, it, it's the problem is we're surrounded by just this high energy density carbon fat food together that everyone's addicted to and craves and that we're hardwired to eat. So all your donuts and your chips and your fries and your cakes and your cookies and your pies and your muffins and your crackers and your bagels and your candy And we're bars. sorry for the insulin spike you've just had by listening <laughs> exactly. to him go down that list. Yes. These high energy density carbs and fats, everyone's just eating them because they're so tasty and delicious and rewarding and spike dopamine and we're so addicted to them. Uh, in, in fact, it's for that reason that the only way you're going to survive is if you target protein first. You know what I mean? So like my 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 idea for the next uh, fad diet book is going to be uh, you get out your whatever junk food you really want to binge on, like a whole box of Krispy Kremes or something. But before you eat any, you have to eat a pound of wild-caught salmon and a salad the size of your head with a zero-calorie <laughs> dressing on it. And so, you know, you eat this massive amount of protein and fiber and water with minerals and nutrient density. And then, okay, you know, maybe you can eat one donut after that, and that's about it. And that's kind of the idea. Honestly, that's the whole, that's the PE diet in a nutshell right there. That's basically how it works. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, where can people find you and find out more information from you? Um, you mentioned your book, uh, sources like that. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, probably the best thing I've produced is the book I wrote with William Schufeld, The PE Diet. And you can buy it uh, at thepediet.com. You can either just buy the PDF, which is fairly cheap, or uh, hard copy there. It's also anywhere books are sold online, like Amazon or Barnes and Noble or anything. You can get uh, a copy of it there, uh, Kindle, iBooks, or whatever. Um, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Ted Naiman or Instagram at Ted Naiman or YouTube at Ted Naiman. Um, I, 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 my, my practice is close to new patients now. Um, and I don't do any online consultations or anything, but honestly, I don't really have much to add over and above the book I wrote. So that's probably my single best source of information. Perfect. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, the sustainability question, uh, from my perspective, in those people who are looking at life cycle analysis and issues of sustainability, they look at um, economic factors, societal factors, as well as environmental factors. And too frequently, some arguments devolve to only looking at the environmental. Um, and then we have people such as yourself who are using sustainable in this particular approach, which absolutely it's, 
it's there's one of the things I was struck with in in Gary's book is uh, applying this sort of addiction learning to the issue of how easy keepers are going to have to eat for the rest of their lives if they wish to be as lean as they're genetically capable of being you know if you 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 you, you know you put a basset on a on a treadmill you can't turn them into a greyhound so some of us are bassets i mean you know but we don't want to be a fat basset we want to be a lean basset okay um and so it 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 isn't something as you say that you can and you probably shouldn't cycle on and off it and on and off it because you're accumulating damage during the off it phase um that is cumulative right 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 um but i'm convinced that if we could step back from the emotion and take a look across this whole space we'd realize that by eating more animal source food that's my perspective and i freely admit my bias that we'd actually lower the environmental footprint across the entire production through consumption space because we'd reduce the burden of chronic illness and the healthcare industry has a footprint and has an economic impact and has a societal impact lives diminished shortened um, all, all, all the things that you could talk about from seeing the changes in your patients right right and and that's a i think absolutely nobody has done a, a true full life cycle analysis of a plant-based diet looking at every factor like that i mean you can't do it no one's done it and the hubris that that's going to be some sort of answer is uh um a yeah. <laughs> little I overwhelming mean, to me people have modeled what would happen if we reduced livestock from us agriculture okay but right. that, again that's only that and they say we'll have nutrient deficiencies and we'll imbalance our food system so other than that you get a minimal effect but then we could talk about <laughs> down the road um no agriculture is one of the few industries that's actually done a full life cycle analysis certainly the beef and the dairy industry have so mm -hmm. again it's there there's this conversation that takes place in a space where people can throw accusations and they stick and then by the time the data is actually collected and published doesn't matter you know the the, it's stuck. It's there. Nobody's, you know, that that you know, beef produces more greenhouse gases than all transportation, right? No, <laughs> and that was retracted. It wasn't right. even like there's an argument about it. It was re doesn't matter. Um, so hopefully, by individuals each having their own personal health story and restoration experience, then that spreads and we can have more and more people aware of that effect. And then the other conversations sort of fade away because at the end of the day, hey, look, I get to keep my toes. You know, right. I get to die with all the toes I was born with. You know, mm -hmm. it's, uh, and I don't mean to be flippant about it because that's a tragedy that that's happening to people on a vast scale 
and represents a real diminishment of their lives that it's it's hard to imagine that impact unless you've personally known somebody that's gone through that yeah no um, absolutely i agree with you okay i've i've gone on a bit more than usual in this mostly because i enjoy talking with you and i love the subject i thank you for your time if you've got any questions you'd like to ask me, it's only fair to give you the opportunity. Um, oh, wow. Okay. So <laughs> I, I have like a million questions for you because I feel like you um, understand food production better than so many people in our space. But uh, uh, one question I have for you that I don't, I, I don't want to put you on the spot and you can just edit this out because I don't know if you will necessarily know the answer to this. But um, if you look at uh, exclusively grass-fed and grass-finished ruminants, like a grass-fed and grass-finished cow, and if you were to do a, just a complete carcass analysis on them as, as to the body fat percentage, versus a conventionally grain-fed um, cow. Do you know what sort of differences you would be talking about? Okay, like pretend I um, take a grass-fed, grass-finished cow, throw the entire carcass in a blender and make ground beef out of it, and then put a you know percent lean sticker on it, 90-10 or 85-15, and then I do the same thing with a conventionally raised um cow what's going to be the difference there do you do you have a feel for that i i don't know of anyone that's done the you know the beef <laughs> version of this i i am familiar with studies that look at specific cuts and then they try to see differences between those uh -huh. and um the tendency although there's wide variation uh, the tendency is for the exclusively grass-fed from weaning through harvest is to be lower in fat, although, again, genetics plays, and we have people who are learning how to finish to high choice or even prime on grass, but it, it takes high-quality forage and it takes good genetics to, to get there. Um, a lot of this work dates back to when we were convinced that saturated fat causes heart disease. Some of these, they'll even say that they detected some, they, they look for cholesterol differences. That's how confounded the literature is with the conventional wisdom. You can find, um, differences listed for specific fatty acids and specifically the polyunsaturated fatty acids, and you can find differences in omega-6 and omega-3 content, and people have gotten very interested in those. Um, I, I, I devolve to the point of saying we can measure differences. What we're not good at is the biological significance of those differences, especially when we then think about people eating North American diet, right? That mm -hmm. somebody, for example, might be convinced that they have to have grass, wholly grass finished fed beef to achieve a targeted omega-6, omega-3 ratio. And yet 
if they eat a handful of walnuts, they've just blown that completely away. Um, so there's information available and I could dig it up and provide it and I'll be happy to do that. But the biological significance is where I start to go, hmm, I wonder how important that is. And then the other thing is with this variability, with whatever those, none of that information is available to a normal human being, not like me, mm -hmm. with all due respect, not like you, who's going into a supermarket to buy whatever they can afford and whatever their family likes to eat, right? I mean, that information is just not there at all. Right. And, and so how do you, how important is that then? Um, and I'm, I think we've gotten distracted by some of these things. I'm all for individual producers having whatever freedom to produce in whatever way that makes sense to them in their environment with their resources, ideally so long as they're not putting an excessive burden on the environment and having a market to sell it and make a living. I'm all for it. Um, um, I'm just not a big fan of label claims at this point in my life. Gotcha. I, I just, I wondered how much variability there was. I mean, for, for example, like you can have some extreme um, animal models where if you have a, uh, you know, a hog, for example, and you, you can just dramatically overfatten this thing. And then you can have a pork belly that has a really, really low protein percentage because probably because you're taking the fattest part of the fattest animal that's been artificially fattened and you're talking about a fairly low protein energy ratio and it might be something that I actually wouldn't personally necessarily go out of my way to eat or recommend to someone that they eat if they're trying to reverse their over fatness you know what I mean because the satiety per calorie is lower and the protein energy ratio is lower um, versus you know some extraordinarily lean you know bison or something or fish if you know i mean some of these white fish have like you know 20 to 1 plus protein to energy ratios and you just get these ridiculously high satiety per calorie and protein to energy ratios so i see this massive variation between um certain species and then also some species that have been um, domesticated and radically overfed. And so then my question is just kind of like how much variation would I see in a cow, in a ruminant, um, between like the fattest cow you could make just by feeding it Skittles <laughs> and uh, and then like the thinnest cow ever that like lives in the desert. It only gets grass to eat or something. I, so I, I figure yeah. there's got to be some differences, but how big a deal is it? Indeed. I, I, well, just if we just look at, you know, boss Taurus, if we just look at European cattle, you've got dairy versus beef. And you can see the difference in body structure of a dairy cow versus a beef cow. Um, so those are differences. All of these things vary based on sex, based on breed, based on season, as well as management. So all mm -hmm. of these variabilities go into it. Um, I spoke with a meat scientist uh, for an earlier episode, and he um, was saying that the swine nutritionists four decades ago 
knew about the need to balance rations on an individual amino acid basis. Now, this has been the recommendation for human nutrition for over seven years. It's going to take us a while to get the information and then, right, overcome. But there's actually people in that space who are saying we need to start labeling food on an individual amino, indispensable amino acid content basis. Um, and what this person, Dr. Berg from North Dakota State University said was, in swine nutrition, if I want to make the fattiest pig possible, I drop lysine content. And then I get all of these things that mimic what we see in metabolic illness. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. But, but again, and in fact, the, 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 the piece that started me pulling quotes out of the, the episode before I released it was he said that they had a study where they formulated a ration to mimic the NHANES average American diet. Okay, they're using right. swine as the model, females. I think they were 60-day-old pigs, um, and they were genetically similar. So again, we can do things in animal nutrition that you can't do with humans. Mm -hmm. And um, the attending veterinarian stopped the study early because he considered it inhumane what was happening <laughs> to these pigs, That's which are used amazing. as a model for humans. Yeah, and I love that. That's, wow. So where are the attending veterinarians for the feeding study we've been running on humans? <laughs> exactly. Well, I feel like if uh, if we were our, on, on as on top of human nutrition as we are livestock nutrition, it would probably, we'd be better off. <laughs> and I've just, you know, having spent, you know, months researching the exact formulation of obesogenic lab rodent chow for example and the the human junk food cafeteria studies they've done on rodents i mean we've basically concocted the maximum fattening foods with human junk food it's like it's unbeatably amazing mm -hmm. and and i feel like uh and a lot honestly a lot of what i've done is just tried to reverse engineer that but so i'm just fascinated by uh, you know what we feed animals and then the outcomes we get and that's why i asked you about the the fattest cow versus the thinnest cow you know like basically i see humans that are 10 percent body fat or 50 percent body fat and i didn't know if there was that wide a variation in cows going from grass to um yeah know, i don't I don't think it's going to be that wide in yeah. part because of the difference for, for, for ruminants. Certainly in swine, we had the phenomenon where a hundred years ago, you had still the lard type pig and you actually had an overproduction of fat. And so lard, so then there was this development over time for more emphasis on the meat types or the longer leaner types and then of course once we get into the 60s and 70s and 80s there was an increased um emphasis on producing lean you know the other dry tasteless white meat um, mm -hmm. <laughs> um and so and and a lot of what they do there is by manipulating the indispensable amino acid content 
Right. And again, they've they've worked all this out. And because, you know, every so often they have an efficacy evaluation period called harvest where they can go in and look and say, oh, look, this same genetics, what we've changed now is this or, you know, we, we feed the same diet to different genotypes and we get that. And okay, now we come back and the thing that happens in agriculture is at the end of the day, did it work or not? And there's no blaming the pig. There's no blaming the cow. If it didn't happen and you won't change as a consulting veterinarian or or (laughs) nutritionist, there are lots of people I can hire to do your job. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it, it's it very different, and yes, I'd I'd love to get involved with somebody doing a compare and contrast. Yeah, um, that's fascinating. So, so it's not about the pig's individual responsibility, <laughs> right? We learned a long time ago. You just can't trust cows Willpower. to fill out the food frequency questionnaire. You know, it's just right. they they don't remember long enough. You know, so, if only uh, they could just put the fork down. They yes, exactly right. <laughs> Back away from the trough, right. Charlotte. Um, <laughs> so, um, so, no, <clears throat> the thing with ruminants is you have this step before our digestive system where most of the energy that's coming in is going to be converted into fat. So... You know, we we have a cow eating a diet of maybe five percent fat. That's crudely stated, but something like that. Most uh, and and it's going into this fermentation process. The microbial organisms are poisoned by fat, so you can't have too much. So they're the ones that are responsible for fermenting the rapidly degradable cell contents and the more slowly degradable cell walls. That produces the carbohydrates that they need for their own growth, but it also produces these volatile fatty acids and and more of themselves. And so then the ruminant animal harvests those microbes. She absorbs the fatty acids through her rumen wall and 5% from fat coming in 70 to 80 percent of her energy is from fat and so that sort of tear it down and then other organism you know organisms build it back up creates some stability in the meat and milk as opposed to what happens in monogastric animals got it i mean it sounds like it's just a more forgiving process on the input side um, versus tissues representing more exactly what you ate for a pig, for example. Or, or us. Or us, um, right. Yeah. So, yeah, not to be insulting to anyone, oh, but yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it is a model, right, <laughs> for a reason. Yeah. So, um, yeah, um, love to talk more about that anytime, love to explore some ideas um, going forward. But, again, yeah. thank you. It, well, it's just all very fascinating to me. Me too, as you might be able to tell, mm-hmm. <laughs> as well as learning from you. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you for having me.